From the onset of entering the promised land, the people of God struggled. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So God raised up judges to help his people stay true to the ways of the Lord. The last judge was Samuel, who judged Israel all the days of his life. The people cried out, Give us a king to judge us like all the nations. The Lord relented and told Samuel, Give them their king. The people chose Saul, a man of good appearance and tall stature, but did not have a heart for God. The Lord rejected Saul and chose an unlikely candidate in David to be king. The Lord opposes the proud, exalts the humble, and in spite of evil, his master plan continues to unfold. This is 1 Samuel. I know we've done a lot of praying, but I just feel led in my heart right now just to pray for the service. And so as I pray for the service, will you just pray for two main things while I'm praying? Will you pray, one, just for your heart uh, to be prepared for what the Lord has, and then two, if you can just pray uh, that the Lord would just speak through me, uh, that I can just be an empty vessel for Him. So let's pray for that. Um, God, you are worthy. God, you are holy. And so, Lord, this service that, that we've had so far, Lord, and that, that we continue to have, Lord, I pray that it is defined by you. It is defined by your presence. And so, Lord, the words that are about to come out of my mouth, uh, will they not be mine? Will they 100% be yours? God, would we be able to enter into the throne room together as we get to open up your word? God, as we said before, it's a pithy statement, but thank, thank you, God, for your word. So, Lord, we just pray for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, how many of you in this room have any pets? Maybe it's a dog, a cat, a turtle, a squirrel. Yeah, raise them high like you're proud of it. Come on. I have a five-year-old German shepherd. I love my dog probably more than anything in this world, and I am 100% proud to say that. But what's so unique about owning an animal is that we decided at one point that we were going to find a wild animal, and then we were going to domesticate it, and then we were going to bring it in our home and make it a part of our family. And what's so interesting about owning a pet, it's like kind of owning a newborn. I don't know if you own a newborn, you have a newborn. And it's so awkward because you're like, I'm trying to figure out what you're trying to tell me. You're trying to communicate something to me, but I honestly have no idea what you're trying to say. Anyone try to, like half of your job is trying to figure out what your animal is trying to say? How many of you have like a language, like you have a voice that your animal sounds like? Like I definitely do, it's my Livy voice. And so on Wednesday night, I was coming back from student ministry and it was about 11, 11 15. I was driving back home and this glass-shattering realization happened for me. Usually on nights like that, I will ask my sister who is in the CFIT program over at Harding to go and spend some time with my dog. She uh, plays with her and, and feeds her and takes her outside. And I realized I completely forgot to ask my sister to do that. So now I'm going home realizing my dog has been inside without any supervision for 15 hours. I'm like, I am the worst dog owner ever. Like the SBCA is being called. I see the, like in the arms of the angel. 
and I go home. It's pitch black in my house, not a single light on. My dog is obviously super excited to see me, and I run outside because I think my, my dog's super obedient, and I think she would much rather have kidney failure than go to the bathroom in the house, so I wasn't worried about that. So I open the door, and she like sprints off the deck. I mean, there's five steps, and she like jumped, missed all of them, went to the bathroom and came inside, and she came in and was going absolutely insane. When I say, like, and this is very rare for my dog. My dog loves to play, but she's not the kind of high energy, zoomy kind of dog. Even as a puppy, that wasn't who she was. But she was running around in my living room. She was doing circles. She was crying. She was grunting. She was talking to me. She was running in my room, running around the kitchen table. I was like, man, she just must want to play. So I throw the toy for her, and she runs after the toy, which she loves that way more than she loves me. But she didn't bring the toy back. I was like, what? Okay, now I'm realizing, and her ears are up, and everything I say, she's doing this. I'm like, you're trying to tell me something. And I was like, show me, Liv, show me, show me. And she's running around the house. She doesn't even know where she's going. And she finally plops right in front of her food dish and her water bowl. And then another realization hit me. I forgot to fill up her water bowl that morning. So I'm killing it as a dog owner. And so I was like, do you want a drink? And she, which is just not like my dog. And so I get the water bowl and I put it in the sink and dogs don't have any concept that things take time. She's like, why is it still in the sink? I'm thirsty. She's jumping up and down. So I fill it up and it's full. If you ever walked with a water bowl, you can't run with it. You have to walk like this. And she is, I mean, I mean, nose on the back of my, I mean, I'm like walking like, like Livy, like I'm going to do it. And I finally put it down, and as I'm putting it down, she starts drinking. She drank for like five minutes. I mean, the, almost, she drank almost the entire water bowl because my dog was desperate for water. How many of you have ever been desperate for something? You know, maybe it's something as small as, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night, and you're like my dog, and it was just so thirsty, so parched. Maybe you're on a road trip and you're holding going into the bathroom because you can't stop till it gets on E. And you're desperate to go to the bathroom. You see, Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament and he starts saying some pretty wild things. He says things that seem very upside down. He says, if you want to live, you first have to die. He says, the least shall be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the first thing that he says in the first public sermon that he gives, it's the Sermon on the Mount. He's in front of all of these people. The first words out of his mouth were, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It seems that Jesus is coming onto the scene and he's preaching a new message and he's talking about a new kingdom. And so in order for there to be a new kingdom, there has to be an old kingdom. And you see, that's what 1 Samuel is all about. You see, Israel before 1 Samuel was this rogue nation that was wandering where these random people would be raised up to be, le- to be leaders. It was incredibly unstable. And what 1 Samuel is all about is the beginning and the establishment of this royal bloodline, monarchy-like type kingdom. But my argument this morning is going to be this. Is that this new message in this new kingdom that Jesus came to preach is not actually new at all. In fact, it's the same message in the same kingdom that God established in 1 Samuel. And the exact same people that Jesus uses then and Jesus uses now is the same people that he used back in the Old Testament. And the people that God has always used to be a part of his eternal kingdom is he uses the people who are faithful. 
he uses the people who are desperate for water like my dog was that are desperate for his kingdom to come. And so that's what we're going to see in the beginning of 1 Samuel. And so Doug did this last week, but I want to quickly catch us up because we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and we have to understand that the entire Bible is just a bunch of mini stories in the grand scheme of the big story that God has been writing since the beginning of time. And so where we're at now in the context is, is there's some books before 1 Samuel. You see, in the book of Joshua, Moses had just died. They had just got done wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. And they get to the the promised land again. They don't make the same mistake. And they start conquesting the land that God promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. And God tells them, here are some rules and some ground rules that we have to go through. And if you do those things, then you will succeed. And the people of God in the book of Joshua, they listen to God. They're not going to make the same mistake that, that the generation before made that caused them to wander in the wilderness. And so if there's a key word for the book of Joshua, it's success. They conquest the land, they kick all the people out, and then they start settling in this land. But in the settlement of the land, they get, things get easy. They, they start to fall off by the wayside. And this is when Joshua gives his statement. He says, you guys have a choice. You can choose to serve God or you can choose to serve idols. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua dies and the people forget about God. It says in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if there's any word that describes the book of Judges, it's failure. And what would happen is God told them when the law, he gave the law to Moses that if you do this, if you obey the law, then you will be blessed. If you don't do this, then you will be cursed because there are consequences for your sin. And so the people start sinning. They start worshiping idols with these other nations. And then what would happen is that these other nations would take them over. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. This judge, this military-like leader would come in and save them from their captors. And then they would be set free and things would be silent again. And then a new generation would come. They would do what was right in their own eyes. They would be enslaved. They would cry out. God would raise up a judge. That judge would set them free. There would be silence. And it was this cycle. There were seven different cycles in the book of Judges. But really, a cycle doesn't describe it the best because in fact, what it was described as really is a downward spiral. Things just got more and more clouded. Things got more and more evil. In fact, the way the book of Judges ends is incredibly rated R in NC-17. And so I'm going to give the PG version of this. But I think it's important for us to know this because this is the context that we go into in 1 Samuel chapter 1. There's a woman in one of the tribes of Israel who is in another tribe and she is violated and assaulted horribly. She is killed, and she, they end up, this tribe over here, get their, their person back, and what they decided to do was to cut her up into 12 different pieces and send it to all the 12 tribes of Israel. And civil war almost broke out because of that. The Lord ended up relenting from that, and the civil war didn't happen, but that's the context that we're in here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Things are looking bleak. To say things are evil is an understatement. And so that is what is happening here. And what I would also even like to argue about this kingdom of Israel is that I don't even think the kingdom of Israel was even established in 1 Samuel. 
I believe that's when the monarchy was established. But the kingdom of Israel, I believe, was established in the very beginning where God finds Abraham and he tells him, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And then I'm going to give you a land that you're going to dwell in. And God wanted to create this kingdom that was very different than all the other earthly kingdoms. God wanted to give him this kingdom where instead of being ruled by imperfect worldly leaders and instead of using people who are rich and prominent and powerful, God wanted his kingdom to be different where he was the leader of them. Where instead of an earthly leader, he was the leader of this kingdom of Israel. And instead of using people who are rich and powerful and prominent, he wanted to use people that were people after his own heart. Even though David is the first person to be referred to and compared to a man after God's own heart, that's not the first person to be used that was a person after God's own heart. I believe God found Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and could foresee that he would one day be written about in Hebrews chapter 11. And he chose him to be the father of Israel because he knew that he was going to be faithful. I believe God chose this random shepherd in a random wilderness outside of Egypt who was on the run for murder to be the person that would set his people free from the enslavement of the Egyptians because he knew Moses was going to be faithful. God's kingdom has always been ushered in by people who are faithful and people who are desperate for him. And so with that in mind, that's how the story of 1 Samuel begins. And 1 Samuel begins with a woman named Hannah, which Grant and Ashley just got to read. You see, what we know about Hannah is that the biggest desire of her heart was to have a kid. And we know up until this point, that desire has been unfulfilled. She married a person named Alcana, and Alcana and her weren't able to have children. So what he decided to do is he decided to marry somebody else, Panina, and so that he can continue on his legacy because Hannah wasn't able to fulfill that. He has children with Panina, and so not only does Hannah's deepest desire of her soul go unfulfilled, but then she now has to raise the children of her husband's wife, not her own children. It says that Hannah would taunt her. Hannah, or that Panina would taunt her, and that Panina was her rival. And, and what we see right off the bat is that Hannah's circumstances aren't great. What we also see in the kingdom of God is very rarely does God use people for his kingdom when they're just knocking it out of the park of life. A lot of times when God uses people to be faithful, they're not going through the greatest time. Because what we see about this kingdom of God, this upside down kingdom of God, is that the way we think things should be are very rarely the way things truly are. It's an upside down kingdom. It's a different sort of kingdom. And under the earthly lens, I think we as people believe that if we are being faithful and we're doing everything that God is supposed, that we're, God is telling us to do, then things should be easier than this, right? I'm not asking you to raise your hand in this, but how many of you have ever thought that? You're like, man, I'm doing this and I'm in God's word and I'm preaching the gospel and and falling more in love with him, like, hey God, can I get a little bit of help down here? Like, if I'm being faithful, shouldn't this be a little bit easier? That's the phrase that is constantly going through my mind. God, why are you taking so long to come through on what I believe is a promise of yours? But I think this is also an idea that, that we believe that faithfulness 
we should feel better about ourselves. Like, and I think we get that confused all the time, and I think that needs to stop. And, and we think in order to be faithful, we can't feel sad, and we can't feel lonely, and we can't feel negative emotion. But all the time in scripture, the overarching theme in scripture is the people that God uses for his glory and for his kingdom are very rarely feeling really good about their season of life and the place that they're in. I think a lot of times we see the people in the Bible, they're saying the exact same things that we're saying. They're saying, shouldn't this be a little bit easier, bro? But that is the way that the kingdom of God works. And that's what's happening with Hannah is that her circumstances weren't what she wanted them to be. She didn't have a child, which back in that day, that was the way that people thought that God blessed them, that that was the way that God told them that he was pleased with them. And she didn't have that. She was raising another person's child. She was ridiculed to the point of anger. And, and think about how lonely Hannah must have felt. I mean, she goes up to her husband in this text and she's crying and her husband goes, why are you crying? Why are you sad? Like, am I not more than 10 sons to you? Which I'm not even married and I'm like, don't say that. <laughs> like top of the list, number one, don't ask them why you're crying, am I not enough? So she couldn't go up to her husband because he didn't understand. He's not a, a man that's in tune with his emotion or her emotion. And she definitely couldn't go to Panina because Panina's making fun of her all the time about it. She's like, who could Hannah have gone to? But what we see in this story is that in the midst of all these feelings, in the midst of all this negative emotion, Hannah goes to the Lord. Hannah gets on her knees and it says that she goes to the Lord, she goes to the tabernacle. And something to know about the tabernacle really fast is the tabernacle is basically the temple, but can move around. And so the people, when they were a rogue nation, always wandering, they couldn't have a permanent structure because they're here today and there tomorrow. And so the tabernacle, they would pick up, they'd pick up all of the instruments of worship and they would carry them to the next place and then they would set it up. But now the people of God, and remember in the book of Joshua, they conquested the land. They're more stable at this point. But remember, the temple was not built until Solomon built it, who is David's son. Those people aren't on the map yet. So really what is happening here with this, with this tabernacle is that it is a permanent structure, but it's not. And it wasn't in Jerusalem because David was the one that took the Ark of the Covenant and moved it to Jerusalem. So, but the place where people would go to worship and where the tabernacle lied was at Shiloh, which is where Hannah goes. And she goes to the place of God. She goes where the presence of God is dwelling. And it says that she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. She wept so bitterly and she had such an intimate moment with God that Eli, the high priest, who would be the person that would have the closest connection to God, thought that she was a drunk woman. It says that she was praying and crying, but the prayer was coming from her heart. There was no sound coming out. So she was lipping and she probably looked very drunk. It's probably that kind of cry where snot is coming from your face. It's probably that kind of cry where you don't look that great. And so Eli, she has such an intimate moment with God that Eli thought that she was drunk because she was so starvingly desperate for God to show up. 
She was faithful in this moment because faithfulness is I'm so desperate for you, God, to intervene and answer my prayer that I forget where I'm at. Faithfulness is we're so desperate for God to draw near that people think we're under the influence of something, that people think that we're actually insane. And what we see in this scenario with Hannah praying is that faithfulness doesn't always lead to good feelings. What we see is faithfulness doesn't always lead to our circumstances changing, but it always leads for desperation for God to move. And the way Hannah showed her faithfulness and desperation for God to move was through prayer. So I want to talk about prayer for a second. I want to take a step back from doing the motions where everyone's just listening, and I want us to think about that for a second. What's the purpose of prayer? Not only like this churchy answer, like let's get, it, let's get rid of the churchy answers, let's get rid of the right answer. But not only what is the purpose of prayer, but why do you pray? Not why should you pray, what causes you to pray? What sparks you to say, I need to get into the presence of God right now? Think about it. And again, like, I don't think that the Lord is crossing his arms, tapping his foot, like, you better give the right answer. Man, like, at the end of the day, whatever we answer in our minds, God knows our answer. He knows why. And it's completely okay that if you're like, honestly, like, I don't know why I pray. It's okay for you to say, honestly, I just pray when I need something from God. Because that's not wrong. Not only does God want us to, to pray when we need something, he invites us to pray when we need something. But then it goes down to our motive. What is our motive when we're doing that? What is our motive when we get into the presence of God? You know, if I had to say that, that, that if there's a definition for prayer, which I don't believe there is a one size fits all definition for prayer, but how I would define it is it's us aligning our hearts to the heart of God. And that's done in so many different ways. That's done in thanksgiving, when we're practicing gratitude and thanking the Lord for the blessings in our life and reminding ourselves that he is sovereign and every good and perfect gift comes from above, aligning our hearts back to that. It could be done through lamenting, it could be done through crying out to God. It could be done through even petitioning God and asking him for something. But I love what Dr. Constable has to say about the purpose of petitioning to God. He says the purpose of prayer is to enable us to accomplish God's will, not to get him to do our will. And so the question remains, what is our motive? Why are we asking God for, to do something like this? And here is a woman of faith that desires God's kingdom way more than her own. She is concerned with God's name and God's glory and God's kingdom more than she is with her own suffering and her own desires and her own grief. I mean, just look at her prayer in 1 Samuel 1.11. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. 
What she's saying in this prayer is, God, if you see fit to give me the desire of my heart, would you answering that prayer and giving me the desire of my heart, would that bring you glory? Would that have your kingdom come, not my kingdom come? I am more worried and more concerned and more desperate for your kingdom than I am my own. That's prayer. That's aligning our heart to the heart of God. That's praying for his will in our life versus us imposing our will onto him. And at the end of the day, that's faith. That's what makes Hannah so faithful. And so we see that Hannah goes into the tabernacle. She is beside herself. But then we see at the very end, in verse 18, we see this. Then the woman, being Hannah, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You see, Hannah goes into the presence of God and into the tabernacle inconsolable. But it says that Hannah leaves the tabernacle consoled. And I think we can read something like this and we're like, well, of course she feels consoled because just look at the interaction that she had with Eli, the high priest. He thinks that she's drunk. She goes, no, I'm not drunk. I am just a grieving person. I really want a child and I'm praying for the Lord to give me a child. And what Eli tells her in the English Standard Version is he says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And when we read that, and I think that's why it's so important. Like we talk about etymology all the time, like the study of language. And and I do not believe that that's the best translation because what that sounds like to me is go in peace and the God of Israel will grant your petition. And so of course she left the tabernacle feeling good because the guy that's the closest to God just said that he was going to answer your prayer. Because when stuff like that happens, it's easy for us not to feel anxious or worried or distressed. You know, an example of that... Four years ago, I had a very mini cancer scare. Uh, I was working out with some buddies, and I had like, like 20 or 30 bruises on my body, which to this day, I don't know how I got all those on my body. And one of my friends who was a doctor was working out, and he said, oh, that would be really concerning if you had like a mask growing on you. As a joke, kind of, but like kind of, ha And I said, well, actually, like there's this thing on my chest. And then he, you know, starts looking at it, and he goes, bro, you got to get this checked out like right away. So I talked to another doctor friend, and he goes, bro, like, there's some symptoms that are very concerning. Like, you need to go and to the doctor. And so I was referred to the breast, sant- the breast center at the oncology department over here in Searcy, which, so I walk into that waiting room, and not only am I the only person under the age of 70 in the room, I'm also the only male. And so after the nurse asked me what my wife's name was, I got to tell her, no, it's actually for me. It's a real good boost to the good old confidence. And, I, and, and I'm laughing about it, but it was scary. Like, I'm seeing the word cancer all over the place. I'm like, man, my life could be flipped, turned upside down in a second. So I go in to get all these tests done, to get my mammogram done. And the nurse is telling me, we're going to run all these tests, but you're not going to have an answer for about a week. Like, the doctor's got to look at it. There's some lab results we have to wait on. He has to look at the images. So you're not going to get any answers today. Which for an overthinker, like not only am I an overthinker, but I overthink about overthinking. I was like, this is going to be the longest week of my entire life. And so she was super nice and she was doing all the things. And then we get a knock on the door and it was the doctor. And he came in and he said, hey, like I just looked at your chart 
And you're the only person in here that's not in here just for a routine checkup. So if it's okay with you, I would like to help read your results now so you don't have to wait a week. I was like, if I could kiss you, sir, I would do it right now. <laughs> and so he looks at the images and he's, he's looked at it for about five minutes. And then he pulls up another image and he says, I just want to let you know, this is what cancer looks like. And this is what your image looks like. And he says, we're still waiting on some things from the lab and the clinic, but I, I am 99.9% .9 sure that you do not have cancer. And I mean, just the weight off my shoulders. And I had to wait a week for that phone call. But I didn't think about it really at all because the doctor told me there was a 99.9% .9 chance that I do not have cancer. And I ended up getting that phone call and they're like, hey, everything came back good. You're fine. Like, there's no cancer. But it wasn't a surprise to me because I had some clarification that, like, I'm good. That's not what Hannah had here. The word for grant is not will grant. It doesn't say the Lord will grant. The, actually, the best definition for it is may grant. And so what Eli actually says is found not in the ESV, which is my favorite translation, but in the NASB, which is my second favorite version of the Bible. And it says this, then Eli answered and said, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your request that you have asked of him. There's, in layman's terms, he goes, I'm so sorry that I thought you were drunk. Like, you're good. I really hope that God answers your prayer. From the time when Hannah got in the tabernacle, nothing changed. No promises were made. But she went from inconsolable to consoled. Why? And I think a quote by John Piper does really good at explaining this. He says, occasionally, weep deeply over the life you hoped would be, grieve the losses, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. And when I first read this statement, there was just all the ickiness kind of took over. I was like, here's just another pastor telling us in a book that he wrote about suffering to suck it up and life's not fair. And if I'm honest, like I was upset. I was like, okay, John, love you, John. He's one of my favorite pastors. But I was like, that seems a little, you know, not nice. But then I started to think about that quote in light of Hannah's story. And I thought to myself, man, like, he's not saying suck it up. He's not saying life's not fair. And this is what we see with Hannah. She leaves, and it says that her face was no longer sad, not that she was no longer sad. Her desires didn't go away. I guarantee that deep-rooted sadness did not go away. But it was as if Hannah was saying, God, I want a kid so badly. And if you give me a kid, then I pray that it is for your glory and for your kingdom, and it is for your name. But God, even if you don't give me a kid, then I pray that that is for your glory too. I pray that even if you don't answer my heart's desire, that it is still your glory, your kingdom, your name, not mine. Hannah left with the same circumstances she had going in, but she had peace because she trusted the plan that God had for her life. That's faith. In sorrow, blessed be your name. In celebration, blessed be your name. But Hannah didn't stop there. It says that God gave her the answer to her prayer. Samuel is born, and when he's about three years old, Hannah comes through on the promise that she made to God in that prayer that she had in the tabernacle. She goes back to the place where she prayed, and she gave him to Eli. 
She said, Lord, I promised that I would give him to you. I promised that if you gave me a son that I would use him for your name and I would use him for your kingdom. And she gives him to Eli. And this time after that, she goes back to the Lord, but in a very different and opposite posture. Instead of lament and petition, she goes to him with thanksgiving. And she says this, my heart, things like, in, in chapter 2, my heart exalts in the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you, and there is no rock like our God. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed." You see, she didn't just cry out when she needed something. She didn't just cry out when she was sad. She took the time to get on her knees again after she lamented and petitioned and used that exact same amount of time to give him thanksgiving for answering the prayer that she had. Because what we need to understand is that faithfulness isn't just continuing to pray and to follow Jesus when things are hard, but it's also continuing to follow Jesus when things are great as well. And what we need to understand is that Hannah's prayer of lament and petition is as much faithfulness as Hannah's prayer for thanksgiving. And I'll tell you, out of both of those, the thing that I struggle with the most is the prayers of thanksgiving. Because one of two things happens. The first thing is that I realize that, that, that God gave it to me and I give him a really quick thanksgiving. Hey God, also, thank you so much for answering my prayer. <laughs> now let's get back to what I really want. Or the second thing, which is probably the most sad and the most common, is I move so fast in life that I don't even recognize that God answered my prayer in the first place. Hannah took the time to acknowledge. Hannah took the time to say, God, not only am I going to pray when I need something, but you answered my prayer and I want to give you thanksgiving for that. And so this story of 1 Samuel, it, it comes out of this very evil setting that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But what this story is, is this, it's this picture of here's what it looks like to have faith. That even in the midst of anarchy, even in the midst of idol worship, even in the midst of all of this chaos that was happening in Israel, here is proof that God finds a faithful person, a righteous person who no one would have thought anything about and said, you're going to be the one to help me save these people over here. He, here's proof that even when the Israelites were in outright rebellion and not wanting him at all, he was still working for his people. That's the way he's always done it. That's the way he does it now. And he will never stop doing it like that. So let's take it home. I think the question now comes, why this story? I mean, we know, if we know anything about Jewish literature, there is nothing in Jewish literature that's in there on accident. So why is this the first thing that this author wanted to write about? And I think Scott Hubbard does a really good job of answering that. He says, The books of First and Second Samuel tell the story of how God turned Israel into a kingdom. How he sought a man after his own heart to sit on the throne and begin a royal line that one day would run to Jesus. But where does this story of a king and kingdom begin? 
with one infertile woman pleading for a son. The stage is set for God to make a name for himself through a miraculous birth, and prayer will be his appointed means. You see, Hannah, in the grand scheme of it all, is an insignificant woman. She has no royal bloodline. She has nothing special about her that history would have remembered her by. But that's what the book of First and Second Samuel are all about. Heck, that's what the Bible's all about. God finding people who are insignificant. God finding people who no one would think anything about and finding them and seeing their faithfulness, seeing what's on the inside of them versus on, what the, on, what, on what's the outside of them. He finds the faithful, he finds the desperate, that, 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 that grieve when they're supposed to grieve, that weep bitterly when they're supposed to weep bitterly, that cry out when they're supposed to cry out, but then they stand up from their knees, they wash their face, and they trust God and embrace the life and the plan that he has for their life. Whether you give me a son or not, whether you give me uh, what I need or not, whether you heal me or not, whether you give me a wife or not, blessed be your name in all circumstances. My life is all about you and your glory and your kingdom. He uses people who are desperate for his glory like a dog who hasn't had water all day. That's why this book starts with a seemingly random story. Because this book in the kingdom of God that he is about to establish is all about God opposing the proud, exalting the humble, and in the midst of evil and cutting people up and this crazy nonsense in the spite of evil, he continues to have his master plan unfold because he loves his people. So the type of people that he uses for his kingdom are people who are desperately faithful, People that are like as a deer, as a dog pants for the water, so our soul longs for him. Man, just that song, that, that bridge is everything that this is all about. The firm foundation is not our circumstances. It's not our prayers being answered with a yes or a no. Our firm foundation is solely every single time found in him. And when it comes to prayer, when we're aligning our hearts back to God, that doesn't always mean that God's going to answer the desires of our heart. But I will say the Lord does desire to hear from us. The thing about this story that I see is that God desired to hear from Hannah. God never stopped seeing Hannah. God never stopped loving Hannah. And I feel led to say this now. I know that there are people in here that have struggled and are continuing uh, to walk the journey of infertility. And, and I want to tell you, man, if I, if I said anything to hurt you or to damage you, that was not my goal, but I understand that I might have. And if that happened, will you forgive me for that? And I want to tell you, the Lord desires to hear from you. And we desire to be with you. Like, we're here for that. That's why we have our elders and the person who speaks come on stage because we want to walk that with you. And so if you need prayer for anything, whether it's prayers of lament and petition or prayers of thanksgiving, please come up. We want to hear from you. We want to pray for for you. We want to cry with you. We want to celebrate with you. We have communion on both sides for you guys. We'd love for you to take that and just celebration, another way we can align our hearts back to God. But you guys know what to do now. Go love first. We love because he first loved us. Have a great week of worship, fellowship.